following sermon, entitled Not Without Our Children, was preached on the morning of March 26, 2023, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10, we will read the first 20 verses, and the text for this morning's sermon will be verses 8 through 11. Exodus chapter 10, this is the inspired and therefore infallible Word of our God. The Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him. And that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast. And they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither their fa- thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for that ye did desire And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coast of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there were no such locusts as they. 
neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, and where and there remained not any green thing in the trees or of the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea, and remained not one, there remained not one locust in all the coast of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the people, let the children of Israel go. Thus far, we read God's word. The text for this morning's sermon will be verses eight through eleven. And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go. And your little ones, go to it, for evil is before you. Not so, go ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for that ye, for that ye did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Parents, I want you to imagine the devil trying to make a deal with you. And saying, I the devil promise, I will let you go free from the bondage and slavery of sin. I will call off all my demons. I will not tempt you anymore. You are free to go. But I get your children. Your little ones have to stay with me in the bondage and slavery of sin. Is there any parent here that would take that bargain? I trust not. Because as parents, we love our children. And as parents, no matter how sweet the deal may appear that the devil presents to us. We're not leaving without our children. I say again, I trust that is the thinking of every parent here. And the sermon this morning is meant to encourage us in that. Encouragement. That's the key application. Because this passage reminds us of the tactics of the devil. And how he does want nothing more than to maintain his hold upon our children. He wants to ensnare them and enslave them. But this passage also points us to our Savior Jesus Christ. 
The One who came to redeem not just adult converts, but the children of believers who came to save our children. Thus, this passage is an encouragement for us as parents. In our battle against the devil, to say to the devil, we will not go without our children. And that's the theme for this morning's sermon. Not without our children. First, we're going to look at Pharaoh's tactic and see in that the devil's own tactic. Second, we'll see Moses' resolve and in that we'll see our Savior Jesus Christ. And then third and finally, our commitment. Not without our children. Pharaoh's tactic, Moses' resolve, and our commitment. From our perspective, we can readily understand why Pharaoh's servants said what they did to Pharaoh in verse 7. Verse 7 we read, And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? They're saying to Pharaoh, it's time to go ahead and let this Moses and the people of Israel go. And from our perspective, we can readily see why. Because they've just endured the first seven plagues. The Nile River had been turned to blood, killing off all the fish. An army of frogs had come and invaded the land, entering into their homes, their bedrooms, their kitchens. And then there were the lice that came upon them and made them miserable as they scratched and itched for relief. Then there were the swarm of flies that corrupted the land, followed by the disease that came upon their cattle, killing off so many of the livestock. And then there was the sickness that fell upon them with the the boils and the painful sores that they experienced. And then to top it all off, most recently, there had been the hail. A plague that was more severe than the previous six. For the heavens were opened, lightning came, was readily visible and the hail, large hailstones came falling down from the sky, destroying anything and everything that was not under some form of shelter so that servant, cattle, and crops were all lost. And those first seven plagues by themselves were reason for the these servants of Pharaoh, these advisors, these counselors to be thinking, well, Maybe it's better that we just let these people go. Is it really worth it trying to hold on to these slaves that we have? And if they had any reservations about saying that to Pharaoh, those reservations went away when Moses and Aaron came to warn of an eighth plague. The plague of locusts. That's what we read about in the context. Verse 4 Else if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast. And they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth. 
And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. Moses warns that an eighth plague is about to come, a swarm of locusts that will eat up anything and everything that's green that was not destroyed by the hail. And the servants of Moses the servants of Pharaoh are frightened by this. Because after seven plagues, they've come to see that when this Moses makes a threat or gives a warning, it's no idle threat. And thus they come to Pharaoh. Is it not time to let this man go? They say what they do in verse 7. How long shall this man be a snare unto us and let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? That's the context. The historical background that stands behind the text that we consider. Because in verse 8, the start of our text, we read of Moses and Aaron being brought back. Verse 8 says, And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh. Pharaoh sends servants to fetch those men. They are brought back to his court. And this is what we read. He tells them. Verse 8, the end, Go, serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go with you? So he says, Go ahead. Go out into the wilderness and serve the Lord your God. And likely, the servants of Pharaoh breathed a sigh of relief when they heard that. But I can assure you that Moses and Aaron were not exactly leaping for joy thinking that they would finally get to go. And they were not because they had heard this before. Multiple times, Pharaoh had told them, fine, I'll let you go if you do this. If you just entreat the Lord to take away this plague or that plague, I'll finally let you go. And then when Moses goes out and prays and whatever plague it was was sent away. Pharaoh did not let them go. He simply hardened his heart. So they've heard this before. And what is more, no doubt Moses and Aaron were suspicious and cautious on account of that question that Pharaoh posed. Verse 8, but who are they that shall go? He wants to know who exactly do you have in mind? Who is it who is going to go out into the wilderness to worship the Lord your God? To that question, Moses and Aaron respond in verse 9. We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds will we go, for we must hold the feast unto the Lord. Moses replies in no uncertain terms, all of us, regardless of age or gender, young and old, we are all going. And he gives a reason at the end of that verse. For we must hold a feast unto the Lord. This is going to be a, an assembly of the congregation. The whole nation must be present for this worship of our God. Having heard that, Pharaoh refuses. He will have none of this. He responds, therefore, with a hateful sarcasm. That's 
the way to understand verse 10. Verse 10 reads, And he, Pharaoh, said unto them, Moses and Aaron, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. He's not saying, okay, fine, I'll let you go. But uh, there's sarcasm here. Admittedly, the Hebrew here is very difficult to translate, but one way to possibly translate it that would bring out the idea of the text would be this. The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. It's not happening. Therefore, He accuses them of evil motives. That's the idea of the end of the verse. Look to it, for evil is before you. I can see that you have evil in front of you. You have evil intentions. And therefore, Pharaoh says, I'm not letting you all go. If you want to go just the men, that's fine, but you're not all going. That's what he's saying in verse 11. Not so Go now ye that are men and serve the Lord. And that word men is literally the warriors, the the mighty ones. He's saying just the adult men may go. That was his response. And in this, he makes clear the little ones, the children, were not allowed to leave. And all this shows us the hardness of Pharaoh's heart as well as his cunning tactic. You see, the Pharaoh is very deliberate in wanting to hold on to the children and probably the wives too. His thinking is that if I hold on to their children and even allow the men to go out, the the adults, well then they're going to have to come back. They're not going to leave their children behind. So his, his end goal is to to maintain his grip on the entire nation. But, even if the men would leave, his thinking is, I'll still have the children and the women to be my servants, to be my slaves. This is a very deliberate and cunning tactic to maintain his grip upon those who were his slaves. And what we need to see in this, the significance of this, is this is the devil's own tactic. And that's the spiritual significance of this, that the devil wants to hold on to our children. That comes out when we remind ourselves of the broad typology of this history. Being a slave in Egypt was a picture of the the bondage and slavery to sin. Remember, the people of Israel were required to do manual labor. Their their work was hard that was given to them. And they had those cruel taskmasters set over them that made their lives miserable, requiring of them their work. And that's a picture of the the dominion of sin, the, the subjugation of fallen man to sin so that By nature, we are slaves to sin. And that means Pharaoh points us to the devil. Pharaoh is one of the seed of the serpent bent on destroying the church. And certainly, the devil was working hard in and through Pharaoh. That's the broad typology. Now, the typology includes this specific part of the history. Satan's own desire. 
to ensnare and to enslave our children. Certainly, his broad desire is to enslave everyone. He's not, he's not willing to let even one captive go. But that said, he does have a special interest in the children. He has temptations especially designed for them. He wants to get a grip on them when they're young and maintain that grip throughout their lives. And to accomplish this, what he wants to do especially is to keep the children from worshiping God and therefore keep the children from Christ. The devil wants to keep our children from worshiping God. That comes out in this history. Because that's really what Pharaoh is attempting to do. The Israelites were saying we need to go and worship our God. That's the idea in verse verse 8 when we read, go serve the Lord your God. Serve there has the idea of worshiping the Lord God. And that becomes even more explicit in verse 9 at the end when Moses says to Pharaoh, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. A feast that is, we're to have this festive celebration, this special worship service in which we praise our God. And Pharaoh would have none of it. He did not want the children going to worship God in the wilderness. And that points us to Pharaoh who does not want the children joining their parents in worshiping Jehovah God, whether it's here in corporate public worship, whether it's as families in our homes worshiping God around the dinner table. The devil hates that and he does everything he can to prevent that. And now understand his ultimate reason for this. He wants to keep our children from Christ. Because that's the significance of that, the worship for the Israelites in the Old Testament. They were going to have a feast. That is, God was going to give them the various Old Testament feasts and they were to worship God accordingly. And remember, all of those feasts pointed the people to Jesus Christ. Take just one of those, for example, the the great day of atonement. That feast that featured very prominently those two goats. The one goat was offered as a sin offering. It's bloodshed. It's a picture of the payment of sins pointing us to Jesus Christ who laid down His life, who had His blood shed so that our sins could be forgiven. And then there's that other goat that was carried off into the wilderness by strong men, never to be seen again. A picture of all of our sins being removed from us as far as east is from the west. So that the Day of Atonement was clearly a picture of Jesus Christ. And that was true not just of that one feast, but all of the different feasts, all of them in one way or another pointed to our Savior Jesus Christ. And now here's Pharaoh refusing to allow the children to attend such a feast which points us to the work of the devil who wants to keep our children from Christ. The devil wanted to keep the children of Israel living in the time of Moses from being at that feast 
from seeing the, the beautiful, the vivid types, from asking their parents, what does it mean? When that goat was carried away, what's the point of that? What's the significance of that? And then be told the Gospel by their parents. And that's still His desire today. The devil does not want our children here. Hearing the voice of Christ through the preaching of the Gospel. The devil does not want our children here witnessing the sacrament so that they go home and ask, Mom, Dad, why did Pastor sprinkle water on the forehead of that baby? What's the meaning? And then it's explained to them. The devil does not want our children to enjoy the fellowship of the body of Christ and to experience what it is to be a living member of the church of Christ. The devil wants to keep our children from worshiping God and ultimately from Christ Himself. And understand, he uses different tactics to accomplish this. On the one hand, he works hard to keep our children out of the worship service altogether. And on the other hand, he works very hard to keep the worship service from being profitable to them. On the one hand, he works very hard to keep our children out of the worship service. And certainly that includes working upon our children. The devil wants our children to conclude that church is boring. He's at work to make them develop a repulsion for worship so that they beg to stay home, so that they fake being sick, so they can get out of being in church. He also works upon the church itself. One of the greatest victories the devil has achieved is in those churches that dismiss the children from the worship service. Have a special something special for the children themselves so that, well, they're with us when we're singing songs and maybe through Scripture reading, but then when the sermon comes, we dismiss them and they get to go do arts and crafts. That's the practice of some churches. And that's a victory for the devil. The devil is also very willing to make use of an unbelieving spouse too. To try to keep our children from being in the worship service. When an unbelieving spouse makes every effort to keep the kids home or to prevent them from coming all together, we must see that as an attack of the devil. He works hard to keep our children out of church altogether. He also works hard to keep our children from getting anything out of the church when they are here. There are many different ways in which he does this, but I want to focus on one in particular. The devil is at work to ruin the young minds of our children through the technology and entertainment of our day. For you see, it's becoming increasingly well documented that long periods of time spent in front of a screen 
surfing the internet, playing a video game, watching a TV show or a movie, long hours spent in front of a screen have a negative impact upon our minds, young or old. And specifically, our minds get rewired in such a way that we lose our ability to focus for long periods of time. We lose our ability to concentrate on something other than a screen flashing in front of us. And the result is it becomes harder to read. And it becomes harder to listen to someone else speak for a long period of time. And you may be sure the devil knows this. And therefore, he wants nothing more than to have children spending hour upon hour sitting in front of a screen. Even if all the, the content is wholesome, it's still a victory. Certainly, he wants to use the content itself, but even if it was all wholesome, it's still a victory for the devil because he's slowly chipping away at the mind. In congregation, do you see this? The, the cunningness of this tactic Because if our children lose their ability to focus for extended periods of time, how are they going to read God's Word? Christ is revealed to us on the pages of sacred Scripture, and if they can't focus for more than a verse or two, that's going to impact their devotional life as they grow up. But now the main point is, how are our children going to listen to a 50-minute sermon? If they've lost this ability to concentrate, it's already hard enough. I understand that that to sit and listen for 50 minutes to a sermon is difficult, but we make it 10 times harder on our children if the rest of the week is spent in front of a screen. And in this we see the tactic of the devil. So that even if as parents we bring our children to church, His goal is to make it so that they get nothing out of it. So that we have here exactly what Jesus talked about in His parable of the sower and the seed. That you Remember the the seed that fell on that hard ground. The ground that was the path compacted down by feet. And what happened to it? The birds came and Snatched it away before it ever could get down into the ground. That's exactly what the devil is trying to do. He wants to hold on to our children. He wants to keep them from Christ. Now praise be to God that we serve a Savior who is mightier than the devil. and who will not let the children go. And that comes out in Moses' resolve not to leave without the children. Over against the tactic of Pharaoh, we see the beauty of Moses' resolve to bring the children with him. That was clearly his response. And that's evident from the very end of the passage that we are considering, verse 11, ends this way, and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And that language of driven out means 
They were not dismissed kindly, but they were expelled from His presence, indicating Moses did not agree to this. He did not say, yes, this is a good compromise. We'll go worship as adult men. We'll leave the children here behind. And that also comes out from the following verses, 12, verses 12 and following, because what do we read? Moses calling for the eighth plague. Verse 13, And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. If Moses was agreeable to the terms of Pharaoh, we would have read instead that well, they went out and they worshipped God. But that's not what we read. We read of the, the eighth plague being brought. And all this shows that Moses was not willing to leave without the children. He would take the little ones. He would do this because he understood that the children of the church are, a, are included in God's covenant. For he knew what God had revealed to Abraham of old in Genesis chapter 17. Passage that's familiar to us, but in Genesis 17, verse 7, for example, we have God explicitly telling Abraham that children are included in the covenant. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. So God. So we have here a reference to God's covenant of grace and the fact that children are included in this. And this is confirmed when in the following verses, God gives to Abraham the sacrament of circumcision and commands him to apply it to children. Verses 10 and following, this is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of a stranger which is not of thy seed. So verses 8-10 through make crystal clear that circumcision is a token of the covenant. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And verse 12 makes explicit it's to be applied to children. Eight days old, that is, children are included in the covenant. So much so that God even warned those parents who failed to do this. That's verse 14. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Now I say again, Moses knew this history. And he had this in mind. Because he himself had just been reminded of this. On his way back to Egypt, God impressed upon him the need to take that token of the covenant and apply it to his children. That's what's going on in that rather strange incident, at least on the surface, 
in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. This is Moses after being gone in the wilderness for a lengthy period of time on his way back after God appeared to him at the burning bush. In verse 24, we read this, And it came to pass, by the way, in the inn, that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah, that is Moses' wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. In these three verses, we read of Moses on his way back and the Lord Himself, most certainly in the form of a man, coming to Moses with a view to killing Moses. And then Zipporah, his wife, circumcises their son. And then in verse 26, we read, So He, the Lord, let Him, Moses, go. And when we put all that together, what we see is that Moses had failed to have his son circumcised. And in light of what God had said in Genesis 17, verse 14, he that does not apply this token of the covenant to his children will be cut off. He's broken my covenant. That then explains why the Lord comes to him to impress upon him this need. And all of this is in the background. When we come to Exodus chapter 10, and Pharaoh says, I'll make a deal with you. The men may go, but the little ones, the children, must stay here. And Moses says, not without our children. That was his resolve. And in this, we see a beautiful type of our Savior Jesus Christ. For Moses is indeed a type of Jesus Christ. He points us to the One who brings us out of our slavery, our bondage to sin. Jesus Christ is the One who redeems us, who purchases us unto Himself by His precious blood. Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. And here in these verses too, in His refusal to leave without the children. That points us to our Savior Jesus Christ who redeemed not just the old, but also the young. Not just adult converts, but also their children. Understand, this is not the only type in this history that points to this truth that our children are included. Take, for example, the tenth plague and the Passover. That lamb... That Passover lamb was clearly a type of Jesus Christ. It's bloodshed applied to the doorpost. But now, who went into the homes? Not just adults, not just parents, but their children with them. Take another type, the Red Sea. Really a type of baptism as the form that we read this morning indicates. Our baptism into Jesus Christ. And who passed through the Red Sea? It was parents with their children. So that the typology in the Old Testament is pointing us to this truth that 
the children of believers are included in the covenant. That Christ's saving work extends to them as well. So that when Jesus Christ came into this world, He was not content to say, I will redeem the adults. But the little ones, they're going to get left behind in the bondage and slavery of sin at least until they can grow up. But instead, He came to give His life to have His blood shed for the little lambs of the congregation. And it's in light of that, this truth that the resolve of Christ too was not without our children, that we therefore reject the error of all those who go by the name of Baptists and all and that would include even the Reformed Baptists. And instead, we baptize our children. Because the position of the Baptists, including the Reformed Baptists, is that the sacrament of baptism in the New Testament is reserved only for those who profess their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not to be given to children. And the Reformed Baptist who knows his theology is aware of Genesis chapter 17 because we would say, well, it says in Genesis 17, children are included in the covenant. They're to be given the, the sign of the covenant. And they would say, that's the Old Testament. Yes, in the Old Testament, that's how God gathered His church. But we live in the New Testament and things are changed in the New Testament. Now in the New Testament, that promise in Genesis 17 verse 7 no longer has the same application. But now consider that position in light of this history. Because the implication of their view is that when it came to the when we transitioned from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it was as though the de- Christ came to the devil saying. I'm now taking the Gentiles. I allowed you to have them before. They were stuck in bondage and slavery. There was a few exceptions, a Rahab, a Ruth, but now I'm taking the Gentiles and the devil responds saying, well, then I get the children. And then Jesus agreeing to that. And now certainly the point is not that anyone who's Baptist or Reformed Baptist is the devil. That's not what we're saying. But we're trying to emphasize the seriousness of that error. Because their theology is such that in the Old Testament, yes, God's covenant included the children of believers, but now in the New Testament, things have changed. So that that promise no longer applies in the same way. And we say that's not in line with Scripture. Because the consistent testimony of Scripture is that when we go from Old Testament to New Testament, that's marked by advancement, not by regression. The, the, the covenant of grace is better in the New Testament. That's the language that we find again and again in the, the book of Hebrews. And it's not better if it's the Gentiles instead of children. 
What's better is that it's now the Gentiles, in addition to God's continuing his covenant with the children of believers. And thus, as a Reformed church, we give the sacrament to our children because they are included in the covenant of grace. Because Moses, as a type of Jesus Christ, would not leave without the children because the children would pass through the Red Sea, which Red Sea pointed to the very waters of baptism. We give the sacrament to our children because we believe that Christ came to save not just adults, not just the old, but the little lambs. And all this is to say that our commitment must likewise be not without our children. When we come to worship God, our commitment is not without our children. Yes, they might protest. They might complain a little bit. Why? I don't want to go to church. But then as parents, we teach them. We instruct them. We tell them when we go to church, we're going to hear the voice of Jesus Christ Himself through the preaching. And we ourselves set an example that we find joy in being in God's house. And we teach our children to have that same joy so that they want to be here with us sitting in the pew. Our commitment is not without our children. That means protecting their young minds from the negative effects of sitting in front of screens for hours after hours after hours, knowing that is the impact that screen time has upon anyone's mind, including children. As parents, we are therefore going to take measures to limit that screen time. To say there's only this much because my son, my daughter, I love you. And I want your mind to be preserved in such a way that you can focus so that you can sit in church with me and listen to the sermon. Even if it means less calm time in the home. Not without our children. That applies when it comes to the sacrament of baptism. We say there too, not without our children. I'm taking my child to be baptized as a confession that Jesus Christ came to die to shed His blood, not just for adult converts, but for the children of believers. And all of us to say is that our commitment is to bring our children to Christ in everything that we say, in everything that we do. As parents... We need Christ. I need Christ as a congregation, as a whole. But now when we ourselves go to Jesus Christ by faith, we say we're not going without our children. We're taking them to our Savior. We're going to point our children again and again to Him because He's the only one that can save them. 
He's the only one that can send His Spirit to work faith in their hearts. So we bring our children to Christ. And we do this by faith. Trusting the promises of God's Word that He will continue His covenant in the line of generations. And we do this by looking to Christ for the strength. Because of of ourselves, we would fail. Of ourselves, we would cave in to the suggestions of the devil, to the desires of that old man of sin found within the hearts of our children. Must we look to Christ, the one who is resolved in redeeming his people from the bondage and slavery of sin to take the children with? The strength is found in him alone. So, by faith, let us look to our Savior as parents with this commitment. That when we go to worship our God, when we go to Christ, it's not without our children. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the comforting promises of thy word. We thank thee for our Savior Jesus Christ who has redeemed us and our children from the bondage and slavery of sin. Fill our hearts with a firm resolve to ever lead our little ones to our Savior and to do so by bringing them here to be with us and to worship Thee, our God. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.